The ABA is joining with Tropical Birding for the first time for an extraordinary adventure in Thailand in 2019. This is Thailand birding with a camera. So if you are a photographer that likes birds or a birder who likes to take a few photos, this is a trip with you in mind. And there are no shortage of incredible photo subjects in Southeast Asia, stuff like sunbirds, pitta, incredible pheasants, spoon-billed sandpiper, some of the coolest looking birds on the planet. Plus, mammals, culture, and amazing food with ABA friends. This is setting up to be a really exceptional time. Have I interested you yet? Is your mouth watering for bird photography and the real deal pad thai? Get more information at aba.org travel. Welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Greg Neese, sitting in for Nate Swick. Nate is currently in Israel chaperoning and chauffeuring the ABA Like a Young Birding Team, the subadult Weed Ears, as they compete in the Champions of the Flyway Team Birding Competition. The other members of the American Birding Podcast team, Jeff and John, are in Africa with the Rock Jumper ABA Safari in Tanzania leaving me in the control room by myself where I'm having my very own Alexander Haig moment. So buckle up, kids. Here we go. As I mentioned, Nate and John are both out of town, and because we have to record this early, I won't be able to do a rare bird focus in this episode. But for all your rare bird news, check out the ABA blog on Fridays, uh, or for more up-to-date stuff, check our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA rare. There is also a feed from this group on our homepage at aba.org. Nate will get you caught up in the next episode. Next up, I get to chat with one of my all-time favorite people about one of my all-time favorite subjects, urban birding. Joining me now from Cleveland is Jen Brumfield naturalist at the uh, Cleveland Metro Parks, an artist. Her artwork has graced the cover of Birding Magazine, and I'm pretty sure been used inside a couple of times. Hey, Jen, are you there? I am here, Greg. I'm <laughs> so here. To, so good to talk to you. <laughs> you as well. Migration is kicking up, and I want to talk to you about urban birding, which, you know, you and I both are inner city kids. Yes, and Bird City Parks, Lakefront Parks. So I want to pick your brain and talk to you about urban birding. I love bit. it. I love it. Uh, you you are right in downtown Cleveland, right? Yeah. Yeah. Immediately on the west side. So I can jump on the shoreway and, and be downtown in less than a minute and a half. And you've got little, little parks. Small parks. Yeah. the uh, One of our best parks. It sounds larger than it is. It's 22 acres. But the actual woodlot that draws in all the the passerins is is smaller. It's only a couple acres large. So we're not working with much. You're talking about Wendy, Wendy Park, yeah, glorious Wendy Park. So Wendy Wendy Park is is one of those places I think that's that's kind of famous in in city city park lore as as being a, a real migrant trap and experiencing close to fallout conditions on a somewhat regular basis. Yeah. All right. So you've done, you've done now two Cuyahoga County big years. 
Yeah, actually three. Three. In 2012, I set out for the first big county year. I, I actually, I meant to. I planned it. Uh, after 2011, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. After 2012, I couldn't stop. So in 2013, I picked up and did another big year right after, two back to back. It was brutal. And, you know, things in my life at that time allowed me to do it. Right now, I remember, I remember this. We're dancing all over the place, but that's just the way it's gonna. That's the way it's gonna go because that's the way conversation with you and me always is. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I remember, and I think it was that 2013 effort where you did something that just kind of blew my mind. The only place in the county to get shorebirds is the airport, and the airport, yeah. the airport is almost unbirdable. So you got yourself a job as a lawnmower at the airport, so you could no, be out there. No, I wish I could have. Oh, I come wish on, you did. No, Weren't you I out didn't. there? Was I remember no, this? I remember I was, this. No, I was saying that I should, and I actually looked up to see what the possibilities of working a part-time job were to be. No, I never so moved you, forward. So how did you? How did you get those shortbirds out there? Well, I, I remember so, that. Uh, this is the part that just turns a, a birding lifestyle to manic. Um, <laughs> yes. There is a, a location, a, a road that parallels the airport. And uh, from that road, there's a small hill alongside the road. And this hill is just big enough to where you can see up and over the fence of the airport and use spotting scope to scan out. Now, this is at least, it's at least four football fields away. Huh. But you can scan out and watch shorebirds flushing up out of the impounds and then dropping down in. So there are impounds on the north end. It's called Burke Lakefront Airport. And there's impounds out there with beautiful mudflats. And like you said, no access. So here I am a couple football fields away, um, standing on top of a hill alongside the main shoreway road, uh, I-90, coming out of Cleveland on a small bump uphill with my spotting scope, scanning to see shorebirds dropping in and out of these impounds. And that would only happen when peregrines would flush them or we had good wind days uh, where they would be moving a little bit. So the plane, the planes wouldn't flush planes them? Planes would sometimes flush them, sometimes, but actually very rarely. It usually took a peregrine. So I'd wait for a peregrine to make a run through. Uh, sometimes they'd flush up for uh, kestrels or red-tailed hawk. And uh, I had approximately at any given time between six and 20 seconds to identify these shorebirds in flight <laughs> at several football fields away through my spotting scope. So the, the routine would be scan, scan, scan. And if I picked up on a line of shorebirds in flight, I had my scope right there, and I'd grip on the group of birds in flight through my spotting scope. And of course, at that distance, you got to be real careful. You yeah. know, there I am. You know, I there's been a couple birds that I've seen in Cuyahoga County that I still have not counted fully because I wasn't a hundred percent or what I like to call five five hundred percent. Sure, which you should For, do. Oh, absolutely. We won't, we won't talk about that slady back gull today. Oh, my God. Actually, we probably God. will. We probably should. <laughs> we each that have one was, of those. <laughs> that, that's a 99.9% .9 bird right there that I had to let go. Yeah. I could have, I probably could have, you know, leaned towards it, but I'm going to wait for one that is 
closer and I can just bang out photos and just yeah. just nail it. Yeah. So, yeah, Burke shorebirding, you know, added an additional 30 species. That's, which that's is phenomenal. Just, oh, madness. Red knots landing on the runways. American <laughs> golden plovers running around. Just, oof. That's awesome. You are also, you know, hitting the parks like Wendy Park very hard. Yes. And paying very close attention to the weather and when the birds might drop out, especially during spring migration, which is yep. really spring migration is really when weather affects the birds the most. Yeah, they're in a, they're in a hurry. They're moving fast. You get the right conditions. You get birds piled up in the fall. They just kind of tend to wander through and linger or not. And yep. One of the stories I remember, I think it was from that that first big year, but it was one of the two, was the Connecticut warbler, where you yeah. were watching you were watching a brush pile every day during the proper time in May, and just waiting for a Connecticut warbler to show up in this perfect brush pile. Yeah. And what happened? Oh, it was just unbelievable. So my my best friend actually accompanied me uh, this day, and I had been sending him photos. I mean, it just was classic. You know, there's raspberry and pine needles underneath from white pines growing over top, and uh, these beautiful logs. So we hit this spot. It was called Elmwood Park. You know, we're staring at this spot, and we popped popped off a couple of Connecticut warbler songs just, I think, maybe twice. And, you know, we stood there watching. Of course, we're looking at other birds around. And and we started to move on to the next spot. And we took a couple steps back towards a car, and I heard a Connecticut warbler. And I turned back to my friend, and, you know, things I can't say here. And I said, you know, you you got to be kidding me, man. You can't, you know, you can't do that to me. Don't even, you know, you're playing that from your pocket. You're messing with me and he's, you know, yelling back. No, no, no. I'm not playing it from my pocket. And I'm like, don't, don't do this. Not, no, I'm, I'm in a big year. You got to be serious with me. You're, you're killing me right now. And he's yelling back at me. It's not me. It is not me. I had him pull out his phone and show me. (laughs) Oh yeah. Even though he's my best bud, you know, you gotta, you gotta watch. Yeah. And sure enough, a Connecticut warbler started popping off a song from that brush pile and we were able to see it, you know, just slinking through the shadows, but just doing that, that awesome song that it does from the dark corners of brush piles. It it was so great. You know, just adrenaline just starts pumping. I probably used up so much adrenaline that year. That leads me to the importance of, of micro habitats in park city park yeah. birding because yep. city parks are mostly manicured. The habitat is, uh, I mean, it's, it's planted trees. It's, it's little fragments of this little fragments of that, you know, back in the, back in the old Montrose days before it became a bird sanctuary, the hill up on the top where the magic hedge is had a broken, a broken water pipe. Oh, Wow. It was a water feature that attracted all kinds of things, and it was out in the open. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so birds would come flying from the hedge down to get some water and then fly back up to the hedge. Uh, And then, of course, it was kind of swampy, and this was always the best place to look for Leconte Yeah. During spring migration was this little wet spot on top of this hill. 
and I'm sure you've got you've got places in Cleveland that are just like that, where it's just absolutely this tiny little piece of habitat where every year you know this is where I'm going to find my Lincoln sparrow. This yeah. is where I'm going to find my my Connecticut warbler. Yeah, and in just like you said, I mean, almost like clockwork. You know, those birds, albeit rare and uncommon, they show up in those spots. It's pretty mind-blowing. I mean, even though I've seen it happen, you know, multiple times, so many folks have seen it happen if they're birding those urban spots. You know, there's a there's one coniferous tree, a conifer, mm-hmm. in Erie Street Cemetery, which is in downtown Cleveland. And every single year that has sawwood owl pellets mm-hmm. at the base of it, or long-eared owl pellets, or, you know, that is where a certain species of warbler, pine warbler, likes to hang out. There's a, a grassier area in the cemetery. And I mean, this cemetery is only a block long. It's very small. And uh, there's a certain patch that has ever so slightly taller grass. I mean, I'm talking maybe two inches because they don't mow it as frequently. Mm-hmm. And that is where we get grasshopper sparrow mm-hmm. every single year in this tiny little patch of ever so slightly taller grass. That and clay colored. And that, that really is the key to, to hardcore urban birding is knowing where these little spots are. And, you know, you mentioned the owls uh, on the Chicago lakefront, which, uh, you know, we have just a boatload of parks. The whole lakefront yeah. is a giant park, but it's it's very urban and it's it's very busy. There's there's thousands, thousands of people yes. in all kinds of weather, rollerblading, biking, walking, dogs, everything you can imagine up and down yeah. the Chicago lakefront. But... In the middle of all this, there's three pine trees that we're not allowed to disclose the location of. <laughs> That's awesome. But in, in the most, one of the most congested places on the yeah. lakefront, there's these three pine trees right off the main walkway. And every winter, every fall, there are long-eared owls in these three pine trees. Yeah, it's amazing. And thousands of people walk right past sure. them. And the owls just kind of hunker up in there and they don't move. And same thing, you know, with the sparrows you were talking about. One of the one of the things, and I'm sure you do the same in the spring, especially look for patches where the lawnmowers missed. Yes, and the, exactly. And the dandelions, the dandelions go to seed. <laughs> yep. So there's these little turns, you know, that the lawnmower can't make the turn or whatever, but they miss it every year. Yep. And the grass gets a little taller, and the dandelions yep. go to seed, and that's where you find your clay-colored sparrow. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, there, yes, there is a strategy to it, but, you know, also folks need to latch on to the idea that this is not rocket science. You know, we get so often folks will say, how do you find these birds? How do you find these birds? You know, and sure, it's being in tune with weather. It's watching radar. It is knowing your local parks like the back of your hand. I mean, it's knowing every single intricate little corner and knowing the birds that favor those habitats. But you put yourself out there and, you know, you're going to find those things, too. It's learning your parks. It's it's learning where the trees are that the birds like, you know, like the, the the trees that these owls return to year after year. Yeah. The patches that the sparrows return to. And we're talking, you know, when we say patches, we're talking about like half the size of a of a normal city home lot, you know, like sure. like 35 feet by 45, 50 feet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we're talking yeah. Oh, really. And some of, I mean, some of these patches can be as big as your kitchen table. I exactly. mean, they can be a, they can be a small little wet spot that tends to hold slightly you know more water 
uh, it's more saturated than another part of that, you know, that tiny little part. Um, so what's on tap for this spring? Rarity hunting, always, Greg, or seeking, I should say. What's on your radar? So this year, I am uh, not doing a big year. And I am focusing on pure documentation of passerine flights along the lakefront, some of the lakefront parks, mm -hmm. raptors moving along the lakefronts, just trying to rack up numbers of birds using certain key green spaces in urban yeah. areas. Also working with Lights Out Cleveland, which is an exhausting thing that's going downtown to downtown Cleveland every morning, walking the streets and recording dead and injured birds that have struck windows to yeah. try to push forward the lights out movement in Cleveland. And of course, just rarity seeking overall. I mean, there's, you know, out of the just incredible number of birds I've personally seen in Cuyahoga County, there's some that are just glaring at me. You know, I mean, it's I've got great cormorant. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> oh, but don't have blue grosbeak, which actually nests in the state. So there, you know, and there's always those birds that, those nemesis birds that get you. You know, I don't have worm-eating warbler yet, but yet have Kirtland's warbler. So, right. you know, just birding just keeps you going. I mean, there's always something to be, you know, searching for. That is true. I mean, it's 40, 45 years doing this and still... There's things that, that you still, it, you never stop learning. Yeah. There's always a challenge that you can make for yourself. And, and I think urban birding challenges are really awesome. We just, I just kind of got into the whole five mile radius thing. And that's, that's a lot of fun. You know, you oh, pick a, you pick a, a circle, you draw a circle five miles from your house yeah. and you see how many species of birds you can find in the five mile circle from your house. More, more people should be doing it. Absolutely. You talk about. Uh, accessibility that just pushes accessibility for more people to be involved culturally, racially, folks that have a harder time getting around to different locations, uh, folks that, you know, don't have the means to spend a lot of money on fuel, people that want to bike, you know, every mm -hmm. single aspect urban birding hits on in that it is something you can do walking out of your door or going to work or on a lunch break if you work downtown. It seems that the the good word of, of birding passes quickly that way. People, you know, they look at you, of course, oddly sometimes at first, but then, oh, they so willingly latch on, you know, and are fascinated by what you're doing. Yeah. And, and a lot of folks get recruited to the hobby that way, and they find that they can carry their little pair of binoculars around and their coffee and follow along with good conversation, see some warblers, and have a great day. Absolutely. You said have a great day. Have you ever done a single park or string of parks big day? In, a, you know, in the urban setting. Not yet. That is something that I want to do uh, where I set out. Yeah, I want to do it for 24 hours. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason I can't say fully yes that I have not done that so far is that I have not done the full 12 or 24 hours. But I did hit, uh, this was two years ago, Wendy Park for 45 minutes and had 90 species of birds. That's that's pretty phenomenal. In 45 minutes. It was one of the single most exhausting and overwhelming and stunning 
points in birding that I have ever seen. All the passerines were there. Uh, raptors were migrating overhead and water birds were still lingering. Uh, so there was good duck and gull diversity to boot. Absolutely. You know, that, that moment right there made me think, oh my goodness. You know, if I, I had to go to work after that 45 minutes, if I would have stuck it out, if I would have immediately turned that into a, you know, a, a, the biggest day I could, right. Uh, who knows what that total would have racked up to be. Yeah, we picked a couple friends of mine and I picked a day a few years ago in May. We did a big day in Lincoln Park in Chicago, which admittedly is a pretty big park. Sure. But it's still a single city park. Absolutely. And uh, we racked up, I think, 116 species. Oh, my gosh. That day. And the, the most frustrating part of it was we picked a day during uh, one the day that we picked had a Cubs game, a Cubs afternoon game. And we had to go between two parts of the park where we had to drive three quarters of a mile from one parking lot to another. Oh no. But we had to get on Lakeshore drive to go from parking lot yeah. A to parking lot B three quarters of a mile. We got stuck on Lakeshore drive for over an hour to go 45 minutes. Oh my God. And that, and that is one of the, that is one of the uh, one of the things to take into consideration with urban birding. Absolutely, it's often, often riding a bicycle or just walking is yeah. the better way to go, or jumping on the bus. Oh yeah, I mean even thinking about you know the amount of distractions, even that Wendy Park is one of the loudest places to bird watch I have ever been. There's a, a train track that runs right through it. Mm -hmm. All planes that come into Cleveland Hopkins Airport circle out over Lake Erie and come directly in overhead Wendy Park, as well as planes coming in and out of the local airport, Burke Lakefront Airport. And there's a marina there and you can hear, you know, there's massive, massive boats coming down the Cuyahoga River right there. I mean, it can be just madness you know not to mention the helicopters that are filming rush hour traffic <laughs> yeah oh yeah I, it just stunning you know and here you're trying to sort through and you've got all this i mean it is the epitome you know people having uh you know cooking out grilling beach volleyball while you're looking at warblers i mean just blasting rap music it just reminded me a time my friend Andy and I were birding in uh, on the Mississippi River, far from from any urban area, but in a place with just a lot of a lot of motor noise, trains and helicopters, and and he stood there yeah. and just wailed at the sky. He screamed, "I hate internal combustion engines!" <laughs> <laughs> All right, listen. It uh, has been, as always, it. it has been a pleasure. I hope to see you in person soon. No, Greg, we could talk for hours. Yeah, we'll get back absolutely. on and do part absolutely. two. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta tell you about you know at this same park a Henslow sparrow that was walking around in the mowed lawn with starlings. <laughs> so there's and a western tanager that flew by when there were only five species of birds. I remember the western. Total in the I remember woodlot. the western oh. tanager. I, I remember that. But we got to wrap this up. All right, let's do it. I am looking forward to part two. All right, I'll talk to you soon. And now with a bit of commentary about his favorite urban bird, is Ted Floyd. I heard them before I saw them. In my experience with the species, it's almost always that way. 
Their calls were light and lisping and incessant. They were definitely going off on something or somebody. The birds were well within the foliage of a dense pinion pine, and I might have overlooked them altogether, were it not for the fact that they were constantly in motion, every individual in the flock. I didn't really see the birds themselves so much as their movements. It seemed as if the tree itself were shimmering, fluttering, on the verge of bursting into flame. A bird flew out of the tree, then another, and another, more than twenty birds in total. They flew across the way to a Rocky Mountain juniper in single file. That's the way they do it, one bird at a time. The behavior is highly distinctive. As the birds traversed the clearing between the trees, I was struck by how absolutely tiny they were. Really, not much bigger than a large dragonfly. Picture a cotton ball with a toothpick for a tail. They have to be one of my all-time favorite birds. Bush tits. It's a funny name. Be careful with your internet search. The scientific name is worth briefly pondering as well. The specific epithet, minimus, means least or tiniest. These birds make chickadees look positively ginormous. The generic name, Saltraparis, means lute-playing or psalm-singing titmouse. Hey, I love the way bush tits sound, but the dry chatter of the species is anything but lute-like. Once again, a completely ludicrous name conferred by a dead European with zero qualifications to name our American birds. If I could change one thing about ornithology, it would be to abolish the rigid, inflexible, dogmatic, quasi-religious, totally Aristotelian, quote-unquote, rules of zoological nomenclature. But I digress. I love bush tits for so many reasons. They're sociable, they're cheery, they're always doing things, always going places. Bush tits never sit still. Backyard feeders are defenseless against these suet piranhas, as I've heard them called. By the way, bush tits are not cute. The adult females in particular, with their staring yellow eyes, are positively fearsome, about as cute as a hornet. Their nests are insane. Picture Minute Bull's dirty white tube sock hanging from a tree and you have the right idea. The bush tit's social system is highly advanced. Basically, it takes a village. The species' vocalizations, although emphatically not lute-like, are complex and varied. I said bush tits are always doing things, always going places, and that gets at something about their population biology. The species is undergoing a rapid range expansion likely mediated by climate change. Everything about the species fascinates me. The physicist Brian Greene, in his book Fabric of the Cosmos, delights in the truth that this universe of ours is stranger and more wondrous than we ever knew with its black holes and gravitational waves, with its dark matter and dark energy. It's the same way for me with birds like bush tits. You could go through life in my Colorado neighborhood and never know the bush tit. No matter, they're there, doing their thing, buzzing about the suburban plantings, tending their crazy nests, raiding suet feeders, always twittering and chittering, forever cheery and sociable, doing all those things and more, doing their part in the fabric of the cosmos. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Executive producer of the ABA Podcast and president of the American Birding Association is Jeffrey Gordon. Technical production is by John Lowry with help from David Hartley and Nate Swick. Find us at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. 
Questions and comments can be sent to podcast at aba.org. I've had a lot of fun here today, and I hope you have too. Thanks for listening, and until next time, good birding.